Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Mike to New Haven podcast with sports personality Mike Cologne. Here's your host, Mike Cologne. weather outside sucks, but this podcast, I can assure you, will not. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 210. Wow, 210 episodes of this bad boy. Uh, Mike, the New Haven podcast, if you haven't checked out episode 209, that was with Tommy McHale, Port Authority police detective, worked the Joint Terrorism Task Force, worked major case, and worked a lot of his time in New York City, also in New Jersey and Newark, but also in New York City primarily in the area, the 6th Precinct, Greenwich Village. A lot of good stories with him. That was about a two-hour show, but it was worth it because he was going from story to story to story. And I'm sure my next guest can, uh, can certainly keep up with him. Uh, and I'll introduce him in a moment, of course. I uh, want to thank everybody that's tuning in already. I see Scott Wagner popping up in there. And on that note, uh, from one housing guy to another with my next guest who had two careers in the same profession, that profession being law enforcement, both at the local level as well as the federal level. And one thing was a constant in his career, and that's dedication. He joined the New York City Housing Police in January of 1987, and he worked the projects both as a patrolman, later on as a detective, and with the hostile takeover, as some refer to it, of 1995, rendering both New York City's housing police and transit police obsolete he went on to work in the Bronx, tracking down killers, rapists, robbers, and every other form of a low life you can think of. And in June of 2001, he would mark a significant change both in his career and his life, as, like I said, he'd move on to the federal level, specifically the ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And he'd spend the next 20 years of his career there before retiring last year, 2021, for what I'm sure is going to be a very interesting episode of the Mike the New Haven podcast. We welcome Pete Forcelli. Or is it Forcelli or Forcelli? Depends. In the old country, it's Forcelli. But here, most people say Forcelli. I don't take offense to either one. I mean, it go a lot worse working in the Bronx all those years. So. And that much is true. That much is true. But nevertheless, Pete, it's good to have you. Welcome. How are you? Pleasure to be here. Nice to, nice to be here, Mike. Uh, nice to have you, like I said. So tell me about your childhood. Where'd you grow up, Pete? I was born in the Bronx. Uh, grew up partially there and then uh, partially in a part of Yonkers called Getty Square. Mm-hmm. which is not too far from the Bronx. Um, spent some time there, probably till the end of high school. Then we lived over by Yonkers Raceway for a while when my parents could afford to get out of Getty Square. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was there, you know, living near the raceway where I, uh, I took the test. I think it was in 10th grade to become a New York City cop. And then lo and behold, shortly after graduating, um, you know, I, I knew I passed the test. I, uh, you know, I did some work in carpentry for a little while. And then I got called by the NYPD when I was 19 and a half and started the academy just barely 20 years old. So still a kid. <laughs> so, you know, did you know anything? I imagine, well, growing up in Yonkers, maybe you didn't know too much about the transit police or the housing police. 
I well, I knew because I spent a little bit of my time in the in the Bronx. I knew you know what they were in the orange and blue cars and the and the the white and and blue cars, um, but I didn't understand the mission really. I mean, I had the, the, the general concept, but uh, you know, from where I was, it was mostly dealing with the NYPD. You know, and Yonkers PD to some degree when I lived up in Yonkers. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting mission, one I wasn't very familiar with. Did you care which department you got onto, or were you just happy to be a cop? Well, the, the truth is, when I, you know, when when they finally called me, because the process takes a while, you go through a background investigation. I remember you had to go to a building downtown. I forgot which building it was. And as people are reading off their list numbers, they're told, "Oh, just go in, just go in." So when they get to me, I'm told, um, "Oh, you you need to go up to the 14th floor." So initially, I was like, "Oh no, is there some sort of a problem?" I had never been in trouble or anything, and that's where I found out I was going to the housing police. It was me and like fourteen other people that wound up sitting in this little room, and they were like, "Welcome to the housing police." Um, I, I'm not going to lie. Initially, I was disappointed because you know, I mean, and again, I didn't really know what they did, um, but in hindsight, the housing police—I mean, what a gift! It was the best job I ever had, and I've said it on LinkedIn. I've said it to people that I talk to. If they never merged those three departments, I'd have never left. I would still be a detective in the New York City Housing Police. It was just a great job. Some of the finest human beings I ever had a chance to work with. John Latanzio, when he was on the show for my emergency service unit miniseries, called it the best kept secret in policing in New York. And I think he was right. You know, and that's no disrespect to transit. They, they definitely had their perks, too. Sure. But, you know, it was a really good job just for the camaraderie, amongst other things, too. But the camaraderie, remember, it's a small department. At its peak, it only had 2,700 cops. Yeah. Oh, the captain knew your kids' names. You knew the captain's kids' names. But there, there was more, too, though. I mean, like, you know, it sounds crazy, but to walk a footpost alone in in a housing project, some of them were okay. Some of them were pretty rough. Yeah, it, it really, um, it taught you how to to deal with people. I mean, look, you know, people who watch TV think that a cop's best weapon is his, his gun and nightstick. That's crap. It's a person's mouth, how they were able to deal with people, how to de-escalate situations when necessary. I mean, you have to become a master of that. But you also have to be a master of what knowing when to stand up to somebody. I remember the old timers would tell me, I was a skinny, scrawny little kid when I started. They're like, hey, when you hit the street, people are going to test you. And um, if you don't stand up for yourself, uh, it's game on. Like every time you're out there, they're going to give you, you know, a hard time. So, uh, it, you know, it, it, again, you know, it's a new profession. Um, you try to figure out well, how's this going to work when I actually get out there. And lo and behold, you, you, you kind of find your way. But yeah, if you if you um, if you do what you have to do and people see it, they you know, and you have to respectfully, mind you, uh, they'll respect you out there. But if you're going to be a pushover, they'll walk all over you every time. So it's a lot to learn, like I said, especially for a, a you know a, a younger, barely twenty year old kid walking a beat in the housing projects in the Bronx was a tremendous learning experience. Undoubtedly, we're talking about Pete Porcelli, retired NYPD detective, formerly of the New York City Housing Police, originally of the NYCHA Police, and also formerly of the ATF as a special agent. And before I shout out to the live chat, maybe you could hear it, maybe you can't, but if you could hear a lot of music and stuff going on in the background, I apologize. There's a workout going on downstairs, uh, so bear with me on that front. I can't do anything about that because when you live under your parents' roof, you just got to put up with this stuff. But one day I will not. So anyway, shout out to Scott Wagner, who's watching tonight. Alicia B., Joe Maliga, Darren Phillips, Thaw Marie. Good to see you, Don. I haven't seen a little bit. Pete Franzo, he's a constant here. Strucker Steve, he's here as well. And you got if you got a question, of course. And no, Joe Maliga, don't ask him if he delivered any babies. That's Joe and I's running Joe. Um, if you got a question for him. Besides that, uh, of course, you can fire away and I'll get to it at the proper time. So coming on during that time, 
this was an interesting decade for the New York City Police Department, as well as housing and transit because of the high crime. And it was a dangerous time for housing cops. Numerous housing cops were killed uh, throughout the 1980s. And literally a year after you came on is when you had the Tony McLean shooting. And I believe Gary Pico was also killed on his way to a call in an accident. So I imagine seeing that early on, I don't know how well you do those guys, definitely had to jar you and put in, you know, put your mortality into your mind. No, of course. Well, I, you know, and I, I knew of uh, Mr. McLean. I didn't know him. He's a Brooklyn guy. Uh, Gary Pico, I met. Big guy, really tall guy. But the guy who was in the car with him, the officer that was in the car with Pico, was a guy named Donnie Plunkett. And Donnie and I went to the academy together. And then we worked in something called Operation Pressure Point that happened down in the Lower East Side back then. It was kind of like an indoctrination into just, you know, um, really hands-on policing. You know, everything went. Everybody that did anything remotely illegal got arrested down there, whether it was disorderly conduct or felonies. And um, so Donnie Plunkett, after Pressure Point was over, I went to PSA 8 and Don went to PSA 7. He was in the car with Gary Pico when Gary was killed and he was burned pretty badly. And Don never came back to work. He was so... um, traumatized by the incident and, and injured his back was hurt that he, he just, he left that he hardly had, I think he maybe had a year and a half on the job at the time. Uh, he went to work for his father at, at a steel company somewhere in the Bronx. So, yeah. I mean, it did. It certainly made you realize that life is, is precious and delicate and you know, you're here one minute doesn't mean you're going to be here the next. Right. No, of course. And to go back to your point earlier though, uh, on joining the housing police, it reminds me of something. You remember Jeff Oberdeer? I know the name. Yeah, he well, he worked, I forget which PSA he worked in, but he was housing and he later went out to the bomb squad in 1995 upon the merger because he was an EOD guy in the Air Force. And oh. he was saying, he came on in 90 a few years after you, that uh, when he got to the same floor you did and he saw a bunch of guys around, he, they were crying. And they, that's, they were crying because they were going to go to the housing police and they wanted the NYPD. And he's from Ohio originally, so he doesn't know. Right. And he's like, what are you guys crying for? We're going to be cops. You know, so I bet you those same guys who were crying that they were going to be housing cops were probably crying even more when the merge happened, which we'll get to a little bit later on in 95, just because of what you said, how great that job was. Yeah. So tell me about, of course, you're walking a foot post. That's one thing. The verticals, especially if you're doing them at night, you talk about thinking. That's your greatest weapon, your mind and your mouth. You really got to use that on the verticals because sometimes you run into a situation, you might be outnumbered. You might not even just walking into a crime. You startle a homeless person. Maybe that, they also happen to be an EDP. You catch nefarious acts going on. I think we know what we're referring to, uh, yes. you know, and they get startled too and maybe want to fight out of the embarrassment. Tell me about doing the verticals. Well, I mean, the verticals were uh, just part of the beat. You know, I mean, what, what normally we did is rode the elevator up to the top floor, check the roof landings. That's where you would normally find people engaged in things, whether it be drug use or sex or any number of things they shouldn't be doing. Um, once the roof landings were cleared, you'd go out on the roof. Um, roofs were interesting. You'd find bad things up there, too. A lot of spent shells. Enough on some roofs, you could probably craft a brass headboard out of some. Um, but uh, the other concern was it wasn't unusual as a howling cop to have things thrown at you while you were doing the patrol from the roofs. So it was always good to go up there and make sure no one was up there. If there was any large contraband to try to get rid of it, um, you know, before it wound up hitting you in the head. And then you'd walk down the stairs, uh, alternating stairwells, you know, checking, you know, if you saw somebody there, just kind of see if they belong there or not. Uh, a lot of arrests came out of the vertical patrols because you'd find people and you'd smell, you know, uh, crack or, or marijuana in the air. You'd ask them some questions, find out they didn't live in the building, uh, you know, they'd wind up with a summons or a collar. And look, the re- it wasn't like to break anybody's shoes. It was because the people that lived in those buildings deserved to live there 
you know, and, and enjoy the, the freedom of their apartment without having to worry about getting robbed or have their kid come out into the stairwell, you know, with some person sitting there smoking crack. Um, and that's why I think that, the, you know, the residents really appreciated us. And the other thing you learn, too, in doing this, because you talk to people, the good people and the bad people, is that, um, you know, housing projects have this bad reputation for all the people that live there. But that's all garbage. You know, 99 percent of the people who live in public housing are decent people who are kind of stuck there. And it's this very small percentage who are really bad people who make it bad for everyone that lives there. So they almost become, in essence, prisoners of their apartments because they can't come out with their kids and play and do things because they're afraid of, you know, random gunfire or they're afraid their kids will step on a hypodermic needle left in the basketball court. So, you know, that's why it's so important to weed out that bad 1% and, and to do it aggressively. That's why what I see in New York City now kind of bothers me is because, you know, when, when you give people a pass on bad conduct and when there's no, you know, when there's no repercussions for, for criminality, then people are going to do stupid things. So, you know, I mean, that's how we made an impact. And fortunately, people had to go to jail for that to happen on occasion. But when we did that, when we put people in jail, we did it respectfully. I don't, I think of the t- over a thousand people I've arrested. I don't think well, but two or three um, wouldn't shake my hand if they ran into me now because we treated them with respect. It was part of the gift of housing. Right. And I remember reading this about Kevin Gillespie, who was killed in the line of duty in 1996. I think he was a housing anti-crime guy, housing street crime guy originally. And then with the merge went over. Right. And that was one of the things that was said in his obituary. He was nice, not even just nice. The exact quote was even decent to the people that he arrested. Uh, so there was a courtesy with it because ultimately, listen, at the end of the day, Jack Cambria said this when he was on the show a while ago, great hostage negotiation, Lieutenant and Scotty, I know you know him. You worked under him in HNT, I believe. Or you took the same class with him, I should say. Um, you know, don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. Unless they do something to you specifically or they do something like, you know, obviously they do something to a fellow cop or a child, then yeah. But in most cases, it's not personal. You know, it's a business. You did the wrong thing. They know the stakes. They know the game they're playing. And you know what you got to do, too. So as long as it's operated that way, then there you go. There's no reason to for them, like you said, to not shake your hand. Right. 100%. Yeah. And that's the thing, just before I continue with your career that, and I mentioned this last episode, at housing's peak, like I said, 2,700 cops. At transit's peak, 4,000. When you have a department that small, listen, I'm not saying there can't be issues that arise with manpower or anything else. Every agency has its issues. It's just a part of man being imperfect, I should say. You're going to have problems, but still, when you have an agency like that that's dedicated specifically to one area, in Trans's case, the subways, in Housing's case, the projects or the developments throughout the five boroughs, they can get that down to a science and they can perfect, dare I say, master that craft over time, which you guys eventually did, to have such a positive effect on the area that they patrol. Whereas if you have NYPD now as 36,000 cops, they do the best job they can under the circumstances they're working with. Well, when you're pulling them in so many different directions, naturally, a city of 8 million people needs different things at different times, you run the risk of neglecting certain areas. And now, from what I've read and what I've seen, Pete, guys and gals coming out to the job now, they don't want to go to transit. They don't want to go to housing. And if they go there, they're doing anything they can to get out of there. 
That's a shame. But, yeah, I mean, look, policing is. is policing, and policing in that particular environment is, is I think, it's, it's a gift. Look, trust matters. And one of the things that I was worried about, you know, because I rose up through the ranks later on in my second, uh, you know, uh, job at ATF, um, is losing sight of things that work. You know, sometimes we chase, when I say we, I mean the profession chases shiny balls, you know, something, ooh, this new technology or whatnot. But yep. what worked, what truly worked, and with the housing cops, I think were masters of was community policing. Um, Robert Peel, Sir Robert Peel said it, you know, police are of the community, the community is the police. You know, we built trust because we were there every day. We got to know people. The residents knew our names. Some of them called us by our first names. Perhaps not the most professional thing, but there was a respect there. And it's a mutual respect that comes along with that community policing. And it seemed like community policing was good and worked. Um, And I'm not saying it needs to be like social work. It shouldn't be. It's policing. Um, But then, you know, next thing you know, we're intel-led policing. We're this, we're that. It's almost like they let go of community policing. And when they did that, I think to some degree, they also let go of that trust that we spent years to build. And without that trust, policing is is often not easy. And sometimes it's not very pretty either. So I, you know, I, in some ways I wish they would get back to the, you know, to, to the essences of, of community policing. Yeah. And there's a book that called the housing police. I forget who wrote it. I think he's a professor at John Jay. He's an interesting guy. I should try to get him on the show that called the housing police, the last neighborhood cops. And it's true because, I mean, listen, I'm not saying community policing doesn't exist in other parts of the country or even other parts of the world, but never to that degree. It died on May 1st, 1995. The hostile takeover. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's we'll get to it in a little bit. Just a quick note on patrol in the RMP, which for those of you that don't know is the patrol car. You know, the old school guys will say they used to keep their ear to the street. They'd have the window down. Even in the winter, they'd turn the heater on, but they'd be listening. Yeah, you get a job over the radio, but sometimes you could hear something in the street by just the sheer fact of ha- or sheer act, I should say, of having the window down, and you could pick up on something and do proactive policing and potentially stop something before it happens. Get in the RMP. How quickly did you learn that? How quickly did you utilize it to success? Well, I was uh, old timers were great at teaching the new guys the, the ropes. Um, I learned very quickly that you don't roll up your window. In fact, it's something that my wife still gets mad at me about now because I still, out of habit, even though I haven't rode in a, a patrol car in decades. I still have to have the window open a little bit. It's just like a comfort level that I have. The the um, the other thing I learned is not to pull up really close behind a car um, from some of the old timers because in case you got ambushed or somebody decided to come you know mess with you, you needed to be able to maneuver your car to get out so that you can take a defensive posture. So it is a lot of things that, that you learn when you're a new cop um, that could potentially save your life. Another one was uh, you know a lot of the old timers would stop you, especially when you first got to the precinct, and just you know. Take your radio from me and say, where are you? Just to see if you knew where you were so that if you were shot at or if you saw something right there that you would know where to call assistance to. So I can't tell you how many times I'd have an old time say, where are we? And I just, you know, first couple of months wouldn't know the answer, which was embarrassing. Then eventually you learn how to absorb that information so that if, you know, if, if you're in uh, a bad situation, you know where to call the help to. Uh, but yeah, when you're new, there's a lot of things you got to learn um, if you want to be a good partner in that sector car. And not only are you worried about the housing projects and the residents in them, you're backing up the NYPD because you're operating, obviously, your police service areas are one thing, but you have precincts in that same area. So if they need something, if it's hitting the fan for them, you're backing them up, too. Tell me about notable incidents where you had to do that. Well, there was there was one instance. I mean, there was many, uh, but there was one instance I remember. It was in Parkchester where it came over as shots fired. Um, we Parkchester is obviously not a housing project. We were patrolling Bronx River projects, which is nearby at the time. 
And when we got there, we went down into uh, the basement of a building and there was a laundry room and there was a woman who was shot. Um, when we started to tend to her, we she pulled because she was she was semi-conscious. She pulled out of her pocket a badge. It was an NYPD badge. Uh, we immediately grabbed her and carried her into the RMP and drove her lights and sirens to uh, Jacoby Hospital. And I remember it was the first time I was in one of those situations where they shut down the roads. I remember people calling over the radio, like which intersections they had shut down as we drove her to the hospital uh, without having to stop for any red lights or anything because the intersections were completely closed down and they had created a path for us to, to be able to drive down, <laughs> um, drive it a lot faster than we would normally be able to drive on Bronx streets. Um, so, I mean, it was stuff like that happened all the time um, where, you know, we would answer jobs that fell into, you know, the, the precincts that weren't on project. We had on project and off project. We had a lot of on project jobs. That was the first one that really made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Uh, and she lived. She survived. Um, she was grazed in the head, um, bled. I mean, I, to the point, we, I, you know, again, I was still on patrol, somewhat newer. When I saw that much blood, I didn't think she would survive. But thank God she did. And, uh, and, you know, never completely lost consciousness, but uh, it was a, a real eye opener when I saw her pull the badge out of her, out of her pocket, um, really a shocker, you know, it makes you realize that things can happen to people, even cops, um, in the strangest places in a laundry room in Parkchester in this particular instance. Was she targeted? Did you ever figure out why she was shot? I no. I mean, it was, a, again, we were off project, um, right. you know, we were just the closest car to be able to get it. Cause the other. Uh, RMPs were blocked in. Ours was the easiest one to get to the hospital, so we threw in our car and went. So what the detectives did, and, you know, what happened beyond that, I, I never followed up on, frankly. Well, I'm glad that she, I'm, at least we know she made it, which is good. I'm glad that she made it. And thank you for saving her life by getting her, because listen, you, before the doctors can treat her, she's got to get to the hospital in the first place. So thanks to teamwork, you guys were able to save her life by just getting her there and getting her treatment or in a position to get treatment quickly yeah. enough. Yeah. And look, the reality is, well, you know, whether it was housing cops, transit cops, or NYPD cops, when it came to answering radio calls, the, the, those borders kind of got washed away. We all treated each other like like family. You know, I mean, it was never an issue over, you know, hey, you're you're in my area or you're in my jurisdiction. That kind of stuff never came up. It was all about doing the right thing, you know. Yeah, the, your rookie year, '87, there was a transit cop, Bobby Venable. He got killed. He was yep. shot on uh, uh it was uh, they were responding to reports of two heavily armed guys when he was shot in the head he was placed in the back of an nypd rmp and he was transported to the hospital i'm not going to say who drove it because the man that that drove it is a disgrace and i hate him but uh you know <laughs> and i think you know who i'm talking about but uh nevertheless you know he was put in the back of an nypd rmp and you know again he was a transit cop so as you said it's a testament to that camaraderie especially when it's hitting the fan in moments like that before i get to something interesting in the early 90s you were a cop for a year when this happened. I don't know if you went, and if you didn't, then we'll just gloss right past it. But when Tompkins Square went down in the summer of 88, did you go to that? East we, we were set down with that last wave um, because they were worried about some of the nearby projects. So we were there. Um, it was, uh, you know, uh, it was not a pretty scene, but um, my role there wasn't very extensive. And by the time we got there, it was mostly under control, or at least... Uh, close to under control. What about Crown Heights? Same thing. All right. And Washington Heights, same thing? Yes. All right, there you go. You're, you're talking about the, the, the situation after the two officers were shot and with the Kiko Garcia and the, the, the... Yeah, that was Washington Heights. Crown Heights was when I think that, that kid was that run was down. That was Gavin Cato. 
Yeah. Yeah. That was the other one. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard the stories about that. And I know with certain things, Scotty Wagner coined the term here on this show, all hands on deck. Not that that's the first time that term has been used, but it's the first time, you know, anybody said it on this show about certain emergencies. And, you know, that was among them where it didn't matter who you were. If you had a badge and you had a gun, we need help. So hey, come on down, come on down. So, you know, during the early 90s, there was Safe Street, Safer City. So you guys got a lot more cops. All three departments did. Tell me about how that changed. I mean, it was under Dinkins at the time. Tell me how that changed your perception, not perception, your style, I should say, of how you policed, if at all. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, I don't think it really did. You know, I mean, we just did what we did as housing cops. You know, and it was weird because, you know, we, we had to do a lot more with less. I, mean, I don't know. I'm sure Scott has told you, maybe some of the other folks. Our, the conditions of our PSAs were atrocious. Um, like PSA 7, for example, uh, when the sewers would back up, the men's locker room would literally have feces floating through yeah. on, uh, on water. I remember when I first got into the detective bureau, getting maybe a little ahead of ourselves, we, we had gone out and done some canvassing on a case, uh, being a detective named Bob Delano, great detective. And when we came back, the, um, there was a squirrel sitting on his desk eating an apple that he brought in to lunch in a paper bag. And the, the clock that was on the wall um, was swinging like a pendulum. It had come in through a window because we were mostly located in basements. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, when the sewers backed up, it wasn't pretty. And it wasn't an uncommon occurrence either. And you guys were federally accredited. So you, you have access to night goggles and things like that, but you can't get a decent PSA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man, it reminds me of something that Scotty said, and I and I, I he's probably laughing as I say this that he was telling me this off the air. He's like, Mike, we finally got our own offices, we finally got our own ESU, we got everything we ever wanted, and then they merged us, you know. And that's uh something I'll get to momentarily, but again, it hits an agency hard, any agency to lose a man. It hit you guys especially hard to lose who you lost because of how small the department was and how tight you guys were. 1992 was when Paul Heidelberger was murdered off duty trying to break up a fight by that steroid crazed psychopath. Pat Bannon. Yeah, yeah, that was a bouncer outside a nightclub. Rudy Thomas is sitting on his motorcycle, just minding his own business when somebody tries to rob him. He shot John Williamson, airmail, hit in the head. And then Alf, uh, Freddie Bosch uh, was, uh, died on a raid. He suffered a heart attack. Uh, while trying to execute the breaking down of the door. I don't know how well you knew any of these guys. I know the PSAs are different, but nevertheless, tell me about, again, just having to grapple with their loss. Well, I, I knew Paul Heidelberger relatively well. Paul was a younger guy. We when I talked before about Don Plunkett and Pressure Point. I worked with Paul down there as well. He was a PSA 4 guy. And um, Paul had an elderly mother. She was you know, much, much older than him, and he was her uh, support network. 
So when he was murdered, that was tough because we knew of the relationship he had with his mother. Um, but also, I mean, he was executed, basically. He, he broke up a fight. Um, the bouncer didn't like that he broke up the fight, shot Paul in the throat. While Paul was there gurgling in his own blood, the bouncer came over and shot him in the head. Uh, and then when he fled, the, that, that was the longest manhunt for an identified cop killer in New York City history at the time. And the mob was hiding him. Um, there were some instances where the FBI wasn't exactly playing nice either. We later found out it's because they had a, a case in which his name came up involving window fraud against the New York City Housing Authority. So they didn't want to share information on a cop killing because of a window fraud case. The marshals luckily stepped up and pinged his phone and we were eventually able to find them. When I say we, I wasn't there for that. I'm saying the housing police. Um, but so I knew Paul somewhat well. Al Bosch, I knew very well. Uh, me and Al Bosch were an anti-crime together. Um, Al had a one-year-old son named Al Jr. who passed away at age one from a heart defect. Um, ironically, Al dies in the Astoria projects doing a search warrant of a massive heart attack. Um, this was a guy who was fit. I mean, we used to work out in the gym together. Um, this guy would, would bench press more than I was at the time. I was a, a bigger guy. Um, could run like a gazelle, was a, a lacrosse star uh, You know, when he went to college. So to die of a heart attack at age 31 is a bit shocking, um, to say the least. But we took some, I guess, perhaps um, solace in just saying that he was with his son, that he, he, just, you know, he was called to join his son. Um, but yeah, so I knew those guys both very well and, and dealing with their loss, um, you know, it, it, it stings each time. Um, so, you know, you just try to do the best you can in the job in their honor, because, you know, they gave all. So how dare you come to work and give any less, you know? So you always just did your best because of folks like that. Right. We're talking with Pete Forcelli here on the Mike New Haven podcast. Happy to have him. Just a, quick, a couple of quick notes on those, too. I think Al Bosch, at least he was in close neighbors with. I don't know if they were very good friends, per se, but he lived in the same block, I think, as Timmy Roy, who was the uh, stead sergeant who was killed on 9-11. Uh, oh. So they, they, I think they lived in the same vicinity from each other. I remember reading that because his widow, uh, Bosch's widow, was comforting uh, Sergeant Roy's widow after he was initially reported missing from the Trade Center. And the other note on uh, Heidelberger is that Joe Guerra, who was on the show previously and another former housing rescue guy who, if you remember, he was shot in the face in 2000. He lived. Yes. He was saying they were in the ceremonial unit together. And this was the haunting thing. They would practice carrying the casket and they would take turns laying in the casket. And Paul would do that. You know, they'd alternate. And as Joe said, here, here it was now. And he was in there for real. You know, and it's and it, it was so senseless too. you know, like you said, just off duty trying to do the right thing. So that brings us to that spring of 95 when that merge happened. And there was hints that it was going to happen because August of 94 is when emergency rescue is absorbed into the NYPD's emergency service. So you got guys still in their housing rescue gear, but they're working at ESU trucks, you know, basically flying around as unofficial E-men at the time. And you have chiefs that retired in September of 94 because they thought a merger was about to happen then. So you guys aren't stupid. And you're naturally sitting around saying, something's amiss here. Something's about to happen. And I imagine you had a dreadful feeling, or maybe not, about what was to come. Yeah. I, and by that time, I had gone from, um, you know, I, I was, like we spoke about, I was anti-crime for a little while. And then I was in the detective bureau. Well, thank God, because, I mean, when we merged, they let the detectives in the detective bureau, um, you know, or else who knows where I would have wound up. 
But um, we weren't happy. You know, like, like I said, we did more with less and that smaller um, population of employees made us tighter. Um, we knew because we worked all the time, especially on homicides. The way it worked is if you had a homicide in the projects, uh, the precinct detective would work with a housing detective and usually someone from the homicide squad and the, uh, the housing a homicide major case squad. And you would work as a team. So we knew how it worked. Uh, and the detectives in the precincts were fine. But we also knew that, you know, in a precinct that has 300 people, 325 people like the four six, you kind of become like an anonymous number. Great precinct, mind you. I'm not knocking the precinct. But I'm just saying you can't have that same you can't have that same sense of family like you have in in a smaller agency like we had in housing. So, I, you know, we, we did more with less and we were proud of that. So, you know, going to the NYPD was nice. You had more resources. Um, you know, the precincts were nicer than the basement facilities that we had. But um, it, it wasn't the same. The camaraderie, I don't think you can replicate that camaraderie anywhere except maybe in maybe some military units that are, you know, living under crappy circumstances. Um, it just, there was a lot of things working together to make us feel the way we did about each other, you know? And, or to an extent, and don't get mad at me, the fire department, because those guys are together all the time. Sure. Yeah. You know, there's that kind of camaraderie there as well for any emergency service guys in the chat, you know, don't kill me, please. You know, don't get mad <laughs> at me for the fire department. So coming into the, you know, after the merge happens now, you know, Listen, the patch on the side of your uniform, even though you were detected by this point, the patch that you initially uh, signed on to has changed. It's now Police Department, City of New York, but the mission is still the same, getting bad guys off the street. You know, tell me about how long, because each department has different ways of doing things. The way transit did it is different from how you guys did it is different from how the NYPD did it. So tell me about the acclimation process to the NYPD set of rules. You know, it was, it was somewhat seamless to be honest with you i mean the thing that what happened with me when when we merged i wound up in the 46 precinct squad for a short time um it was an interesting place to work no, not knowing the geography was i would say would be the biggest challenge because i had never worked in that particular part of the bronx but um i wasn't there for long because the 47 precinct um in 1995 or 96 i forgot which one actually led the city in homicides and the chief of bronx detectives at the time was a former chief of housing detectives, a guy named Charles Camerdenner. Some people didn't like Charlie because he was a hard charger and he he was a big accountability guy. I love the guy. Um, if if you were working hard and you needed something, you got it. You know that's that at least in my dealings with him, that's how how it worked out. So he asked me to go up to the four seven. I was up there for a while. We we made some progress. We you know we closed a bunch of homicides and then. Um, then I had an incident up in the 47 on Christmas of 1996, where a guy who had burglarized the cop's apartment uh, on Christmas Day, the, the cop was away, um, you know, with family, and uh, he comes home and his gun is, is missing. And so the duty captain calls us and he's like, hey, you know, this guy says his gun is missing. There's no forced entry. We're a little bit worried, you know. So we're like, no worries. So we we actually went and knocked on the landlord's door. And luckily for the cop, this guy had a surveillance camera on the first floor where the cop lived. So what happened was there's a couple. <laughs> you can see it clear as day on surveillance. The, the, the wife stands and blocks what she can of the camera view. The husband gets down and literally picks the lock. It's the first time I ever seen a lockpick burglary in my life. And then they cut, they, they come out and the guy's carrying a 90 pound safe and he drops it by mistake. And then, you know, we're like, if you ever see somebody deadlift, there's a tendency to look up as he picks the, the safe up, he looks right into the camera. 
I recognized him because he had been arrested by Pete Schwartz, who was up in the 4-7 squad with me, for stealing cars that he had sold to people. So you sell, I sell you a car. I go with the other key and I steal it and I sell it to somebody else. So I don't know how you don't think the paper trail is going to catch up to you. But I, so I recognized the guy. And um, we went up. He lived at Yonkers. We went up to Yonkers to get a description of the building for a search warrant. And the guy saw me. And he starts going rooftop to rooftop to rooftop. Um, he, the, the final roof he jumped on was a, it was snowing and it was a sloped roof and I'm afraid of heights. So I wasn't chasing him. So he gets to the final roof and falls and breaks his back. So of oh, course, poor the first, thing. yeah, the first thing he says, Oh, the cop chased me. So internal affairs came up, uh, McGoldrick, a Lieutenant McGoldrick, great guy from, from what his reputation as a, as a you know, on patrol was, and he could see one set of footprints across all the roofs. Right. And then you see on the final side, the, the, the guy's footprints as he slid down. So he's like, all right, case closed. But nonetheless, um, I didn't have permission from the chief of detectives office to go up to Yonkers. So my penalty was I was transferred to the 45th precinct um, with a wink, wink, because the chief was like, hey, the four five just picked up a big part of the four three, like the um, Westchester Square area. Would you mind going there? Um, you know, so I was like, yeah, so I, I did some time there and then I went to, to Bronx homicide where I rounded out like just shy of my last five years, mostly working on federal gang stuff, even though I was still a, um, you know, an NYPD detective. And that transitions perfectly into one of the cases I wanted to ask you about was the sex money murder bloods. Now, when we think of the bloods and the Crips, we think of the West coast, right? We think right. of LA and, you know, and they're primarily active out there. But they're scattered around the country, and they're definitely in New York, too. Make no mistake about it. So tell me about who they were and what you were after them for. Yeah, well, sex money murder, it's it's weird because when I was, again, a, a beat cop, we were encountering these kids. Back then, they were the Castle Hill Boys and the Soundview Boys. They weren't sex money murder. So, um, but they were violent. So, I mean, when we were in anti-crime, there were times where we'd roll up on bodies, you know, and call the squad and find out, oh, in a word on the street, they had something to do with Peter Rollock. A pistol Pete, they used to call them. So by the time um, I went to the homicide squad, they were starting up this initiative to start looking at gangs. Um, because for a while, New York was saying, we don't have a gang problem here. We don't have... So finally, they acquiesced and said, yeah, we have a gang problem. And um, we'd heard of sex, money, murder. So but what it was is it was kind of a hybrid of the Castle Hill boys and the Soundview boys. And what they learned is that you can make a lot more money selling crack in uh, North Carolina, in Pittsburgh, and in uh, many other cities than you were in the Bronx. So what they did is they started to go out to these other cities and started starting drug operations. Um, they they were bold in that they were very violent, but they also like to brag about what they did, you know, usually, to, you know, within the other gangs, you know, not out like broadly, but so, you know, to the people who normally wouldn't snitch. So, but anyway, um, just after we started looking at the group, they were involved in a murder that happened in the Salview projects on Thanksgiving day of 1997. Uh, it was like a sacred game. Like this was when Castle Hill projects played Soundview in a football game that went on for generations. Um, well, Peter Rolock, who was the, who the founder of sex money murder was sitting in jail um, for a drug conspiracy. And we were looking at him for a bunch of murders. So what happened was um, he started spreading the word to other sex money murder people that, uh, that the, there were two twins that the Mullins brothers that they turned into rats. They were snitching. Um, the reality is, is that they were making a crap load of money and they just weren't putting money in Pete's commissary and Pete felt snubbed. So he lied and said that they were snitches when in fact they weren't. So, but nonetheless, they thought that they were going to go kill these twins 
and prevent them from testifying against him in federal court. Um, by that time, we had identified most of the gang and we had an informant in the crew. So within moments of that shooting, we knew who the shooters were. We were able to start, um, you know, rounding them up. And it was, it was, you know, this was really like, like kind of a, a career changer for me because what happened was I saw these guys that would come in and we proffer them. Now, a proffer, I don't know, for, for the sake of the viewers, is when, you know, a, um, a, an agent or a detective and a prosecutor sit down with a defendant and the defendant's attorney. And the deal is, tell us what you, you know, they don't have to talk to you. But if you tell us everything you know, you won't be charged with it. You know, it's kind of like a, they call it a queen for a day agreement. So you're basically giving them immunity for what they tell you. It doesn't mean you can't go out and try to prove some of those things later on if they back out of the deal. So, but just being there, listening to these guys talk about all of these different murders and where we could find evidence and who else witnessed it. And then, you know, we'd leave those interviews and go out and have to track down um, the witnesses or, you know, dig up a gun that was buried in Soundview Park. It was amazing. It was like a, a smorgasbord for a detective. Like if you really like chasing leads, this was like an unending. So it was like a, going to, you know, like a buffet, you know, you know never ending buffet of leads. So, but, you know, we were able to, in the end, um, for the first wave was with ATF. We charged Rolock, the shooters in that case, and a bunch of other people with some with money laundering. Um, and then uh, when a lot of the gun violence was taken out because we arrested all those defendants, the FBI was interested in some other stuff that was going on. So there were three different waves of the sex money murder case. Um, the first one was with ATF. The second one was a little bit DEA and IRS. And then the final one was mostly FBI. But in the end, it was 51 defendants. And Peter Wolock got put in the Supermax, uh, life plus 105 years in solitary. Mostly the solitary because he ordered the murders from prison. And the, the belief was that even having him in prison doesn't keep the public safe. So that was a great case. And then when I reflected on the, the sentences uh, of these folks, and then I looked at the sentences that the murderers I arrested when I was a regular detective working state cases, I was like, there's no way I could keep doing state cases. And see people, you know, getting plea bargains to like, you know, a, a criminal negligent homicide or, or, you know, or just ridiculously low sentences. I mean, we were getting people, um, you know, a, a felon in possession of ammunition if they had three prior felonies in the Southern District. We got a guy 15 years for having a bullet in his pocket, 15 year mandatory minimum. Um, and I was saying, you know, most of the people I arrested for murder uh, didn't wind up getting 15 years when, when everything was said and done in the state system. So it just made sense for me to leave. That's why I jumped ship. Oh, and I'll get to that momentarily. And that's, you know, thank you for going into that case because I look at it and I'm like the greatest illusion. And I'm sure the Mullins twins, you know, didn't understand this until they were gunned down is that these gangs create. And also you can say the same thing about the mafia, this illusion of loyalty and love and trust, you know, and, and it's heartbreaking to see these young kids that didn't grow up in a good home. That's usually who goes into gangs do that because that's what they're seeking, you know, and they'll do anything to get it. And they make this decision thinking that's what they're going to get. But the second somebody has the chance to turn that knife around and stick it in your back, they will, you know, and look at, look at those two. They probably thought they were in it for loyalty. They probably thought they were doing the most for their boss. And in the end, what did it get them to death? Yeah. Well, one of them survived once dead, but I mean, one one's survived dead. and their bodyguard was killed. No, it's, it's, um, it's crazy. A, a, a guy named Jonathan Green, a British journalist, wrote a book on the sex money murder case that's really worth read. But uh, you'll see some of the some of those kids were brought into the gang and started doing shootings at age 11. Imagine shooting somebody. I mean, how do you ever if you're a little kid, you're 11 years old, 
and you start going out and doing things like that. How do you how do you ever recover? You know, I mean, that's the sad part is takes a lot. part of it is part of it is, is lack of role models and, and in some instances, um, family involvement, you know, that, that allows them to, to, to look for something else. But that, you know, that's that's another story, I guess. No, it's, I remember I was watching something on YouTube the other day. I had Time to Kill. It was a documentary about this Australian criminal. Australia had like a really deadly gang war going on over drugs, primarily in the mid-90s, early 2000s. kid named Dino Debra, half Albanian, half Australian, uh, committed his first robbery at age 11, sold drugs by the time he was 15, killed his first person by the time he was 23, dead by age 25. Like that. It's a vicious cycle, you know? And those who live by the gun, what's the old saying? Die by the gun. Oh, yeah. 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 Another, you know, I don't know if you ever had any cop killings that you investigated personally, because in the Bronx alone, Vinnie Judas got killed, I think, in the 5-0 in 96 on that domestic call. Yes. And he got shoved into the mirror. And then I'm trying to think, well, Sean Carrington was killed in 1998 on the buy-in bus. Now, I don't know which vicinities you worked in specifically in the Bronx to have those cases, if you had them at all. But did you ever investigate any line of duty deaths like that? I was, I responded to the Carrington case. Uh, I wasn't the case detective, but you know, when a cop gets killed uh, or even a retired cop gets killed in New York or a kid, uh, it, usually they, they put together a task force. And I've worked on, on it with Carrington. Um, then um, there was a retired detective that got killed that I had a pretty big role in investigating, but I wasn't the case detective on that either. That was Donald Pagani. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a retired detective, got killed in Hunts Point um, during a uh, payroll robbery. You know, he was basically, he was, going to the bank and cashing checks for a bunch of employees that worked at a meat processing plant because they weren't in the country legally and they didn't trust the banks. And and he got robbed and killed by a group of Colombian home invaders who uh, pretended that they were cops and, you know, th- they did a car stop on them. And when Donald's realized that they weren't cops, he had a little C-camp pistol mm-hmm. uh, and they had guns out. So he killed the guy at the driver's side. Uh, the others all fled. Luckily, the guy that was dead had a phone on him, and it just was a treasure trove of intelligence. So within like a couple of days, we were up on five or six wiretaps. We were flying down to Miami, chasing people. We were kicking in doors in Queens. In the end, they wound up Jimmy Motto uh, from Red Rope, phenomenal mm-hmm. investigator. Jimmy was the case detective on that. They wound up extraditing these people from Colombia, and it was the first time in a long time that Columbia extradited anybody back to the United States. And I remember they, they sent some of the Columbia national police up here and they took them around Manhattan on a harbor boat and the Colombian police were so happy. But, uh, you know, those things, you know, when it's a cop or, or a family member of a cop or a retired cop, or even like I said, a little kid, when they put those task forces together and they really go out there and put forth a, a hard effort to solve those cases, it's, um, it's something to behold and it's really inspiring to be part of because everybody just brings their A game. So, yeah, but th- those are the ones I, w- I was involved in. And, and Ozzie Potter as well, when Ozzie Potter was killed on Laconia Avenue, another retired detective intervening in a robbery. Um, so, you know, that task force I was part of as well. It was back 19- 1995, I think, August. It's a long time ago, man. It seems like a lifetime ago. And that brings us to June of 2001. You did the reverse Howard Safer. Howard Safer went from the Federals to the NYPD, as he discussed with me a few episodes ago. And then you went from the NYPD up to the federals. And, and you mentioned why you're working all these major cases at the state level. You want to try something different. And obviously things had changed a little bit on the NYPD side upon the merger of the departments in 1995. So you go, of course, down to 26 Federal Plaza, I believe, which is that, is that where the ATF is located? Or do I have that incorrect? No, we were at Six World Trade. Okay. Six World yeah. Trade, the customs house. My apologies on that. So one PP to Six World Trade. 
vast area. This is right before 9-11 that we'll get into. Just tell me first before I get to that date. I talked about it earlier, and you said it was a seamless transition going from housing and the way they did things to the NYPD. But going from local to federal is a big jump. Was it, I, I imagine, and again, I could be wrong, correct me if I am. Was it less seamless given the fact that you're jumping, you know, how would I put it? Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Statures, I guess, of what you can do. You know, I'll say yes and no, and my situation was a bit unique, and I'll, I'll, t- I'll explain why. Um, yes, there's a, a ton more paperwork federally. Um, I had a boss that I worked for when I started with ATF who loved cops. And when I left the NYPD, I had a case that I had started uh, was on this guy named Nice Bellow. So um, my lieutenant showed up to a from Bronx homicide. I didn't really care for the case much because it was a, a, a guy who we thought was a home invader. So what I said was, I said, Sean, can I take this case with me? He's like, I really don't care. Take it. So what happened was when I started working for Jerry, by that time, I had worked a lot with the Southern District of New York, the U.S. Attorney's Office there. I had an office in their office space. And Jerry was like, yes, keep going there. You know, Do what you got to do. So he almost really didn't care. He gave me a lot more freedom than he probably uh, normally would have or perhaps should have. So um you know, I had to get used to the paperwork, but working the investigations, like the things that we did were, were mostly the same, just a lot more permission to do everything. And, you know, operational plans that are like 20 pages long to go out and do a surveillance. So I had to, I had to hone my typing skills. Um, but yeah, the, the other thing that was kind of weird is usually with ATF, um, you start in the field division for a little while and then you go down to the academy. Well, 9-11 happened. And because I was already a cop for so long, they were like, hey, you just keep doing what you're doing. And we'll send you to the academy when we can. I didn't wind up going to the ATF academy until I had over two years on with ATF, which made it scary because if I failed, I couldn't go back to the NYPD. Right. Yeah. That's, it's, and, it's a tough academy, too. Yeah. And that so, made it especially daunting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking right now at Six World Trade Center. You know, even though you didn't have that office long, unfortunately, and I'll get, I'll get to 9-11 in a second. It had to have been quite the view to walk in every day, see those two towers, go to that building, which was right in front of the North Tower. Must have been a hell of a place to work. Yeah, it was beautiful. Uh, you know, and it had everything because we went downstairs. If it was like, you know, if it was your anniversary, you go downstairs and buy a card. You know, you could you could eat. I mean, because downstairs you had a mall, you had restaurants. So it was kind of self-contained. Everything you needed was in walking distance to the office, which is nice. And that's not the case everywhere I've worked, you know. Right. And I'm looking at the list of tenants in Six World Trade. IRS inspection service. Obviously, it was called the Customs House for a reason. U.S. Customs was there. And this before this is before they merged with INS in 2003. Department of Commerce, you guys, ATF. Department of Agriculture, Department of Labor, the Peace Corps, New York's regional office of the Peace Corps, and a bank by the name of Export Import and East Coast Building Services, which was building management for Six World Trade. So, you know, like I talked about with my buddy Brian Hearn from the Bomb Squad, he was down the street that day working an off-duty job the New York Stock Exchange doing security, you're, you know, in your office on the 11th floor, as you were telling me, I think off the air before we came on, Johnny on the spot. So tell me about your morning from 846 onward. On 9-11? Yes. I got there after the first plane hit. Okay. And um, 
Initially, I ran into John Faust, who was a, a detective that I worked with from the Arson and Explosives Task Force, and we had a plan. You know, like I got out of the car and I saw this gigantic plane engine on the street over, um, that's when I realized, because I'm not the smartest guy. First, I thought, well, that must have been a big propeller plane that hit the building. I didn't initially think it was a, a, you know, a commercial airliner until I saw the engine on the ground. But John, John was senior guy, so I was going to listen to him. He had a plan that we were going to stick together. So uh, initially, we just helped, like everybody else, keep people moving. You know, we figured at some point there's going to be an investigation. Uh, then we went up the stairs, the Vesey Street stairs, and we made it up to the plaza. We walked past the ball, and while I was up there, I was walking towards the South Tower. And um, it's funny, I was looking at an EMT who was tending to a man that was on the ground, young EMT. She looked like she was like 20, 22. And then the second plane hit, and you, know, like you could feel the heat, even though it was, you know, dozens of stories up in the air, you can hear the explosion. And I remember turning and looking to my left at the, um, at the EMT. And now she was laying on the ground. Um, her eyes were open. She, but it was clear that she was gone. So, you know, spent some time there, saw a couple of people jump um, from buildings, which I had never seen before. Cause it, I mean, you speak to people as a detective, you're showing up to a jumper and they're either waiting for you to talk to them because they're looking for attention so that you can talk them off and get them some help or, they um, they jumped already, and you have a crime scene. This was the first time they ever saw people literally falling to their deaths, um, and it was a tough thing to see. Like you literally, like, you almost like brace yourself that like you're about to get punched in the face. Um, so you know, eventually realized not a safe place to be. Ran back north um, and back down those steps, and then spent you know that day mo mostly looking for. Um, well, I was to ask to actually get all the ATF people out of the plaza. The problem was I was so new to ATF, I didn't even know who all the ATF people were, but I wasn't going to say no to my bosses. So eventually made it down to uh, across the street from the, you know, the south part of the plaza. Uh, I was actually in front of Century 21, like the southern corner of Century 21, when um, an agent, an ATF agent I ran into grabbed me by the shoulder. I was watching. I was actually watching Vinnie Dan's, John Coughlin, and Walter Weaver walk into the, the site when... Jason, the agent, grabbed me and just said, run. And I remember looking up, and if you ever look at the footage of when the South Tower fell, the top canted over. Like from where we were standing, it looked like it was going to fall like a domino into the East River. So, um, you know, we, we I just started running north. Uh, I hit right between the shoulder blades with something. And then I jumped under a, uh, a truck, a fire truck that was parked there for a few minutes. And then realized shortly after being, not even minutes, probably seconds, realized shortly after, hey, stupid, uh, this wasn't a good move because the dust cloud hit me in the face. I'm like, you're going to die. You're going to suffocate on this truck. So I got out and ran north and then just spent the next few days um, trying to help, you know, but as we all know, people either got out and were okay or people perished. Not many, not many people needed rescuing. Um, you know, it was, it was just a tough thing to, to see and to deal with. And, you know, I mean, look, all of us that were there, I think um, none of us will ever be the same. You know, wound up actually losing my right lung in 2017 to lung cancer that, that I got from this. I never smoked a cigarette in my life. But lo and behold, you know, years later, caught up to me while I was down in Miami. I think that EMT you were talking about, I was looking it up, was Yamel Marino, right? Was it her? You know, I'm going to tell you something. I didn't know who it was. And, you know, I had gone to the um, to the museum and recorded one of those sessions. You know what they ask? You can go there yeah. and record your recollection for that day. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to a woman. Her name's Weinstein. If I'm not mistaken, Amy or something. Well, anyway, I'm describing what I saw. And I had no idea 
uh, you know, who she was. And the woman who's taken my story starts like literally tearing up and crying. And I'm like, well, I didn't think my story was that sad for a woman who's been taking the um, stories of countless survivors. Well, what it was is she goes, she said, Do you, um, would you recognize that EMT if you saw her? And I was like, it's, I think so. And it was because um, they never knew where that the young lady that you just mentioned, they never knew where she died. They knew she died on 9-11. They never knew where or how. So this woman who I'm telling her the story instantly clicks in her head exactly who I'm talking about. I mean, talk about dedication. And I know there's some, you know, um, issues, I guess, that some of the cops are upset that the museum won't let them carry guns in there and politics and whatnot I try to stay out of. But I was really impressed that this woman could be so passionate and so knowledgeable about the events of 9-11 that here I'm describing what I saw and she's able to put faces and names to the sequence of events that I'm describing. Really pretty inspiring. But yes, to, to answer your question, um, I was told that her name was Yamel Marino. Yeah, she was the only female EMT that died. Eight of them did. And of the entire first responder community that went down there, Port Authority Police, NYPD, FDNY, court officers, FBI, Secret Service, um, she was one of three that was killed that day, females, because Kathy Mazza, captain with the Port Authority Police, Maura Smith, NYPD officer. Uh, and on the federal side, of course, Craig Miller from the Secret Service, Lenny Hatton from the FBI uh, were killed in the collapses and, and six war trade alone. I think, right, there was a story I was told by Brian Hearn, Jerry Rafa, who I think was ATF, right, if I'm not mistaken, Jerry. Yeah, he's my boss. Yeah, <laughs> Jerry, of course, again, a great guy, an interesting character. He's walking out, and on the plaza is Kevin Barry from the Bomb Squad, all Bomb Squad guys, Brian Hearn, um, Dan McNally, my good buddy, and uh, Danny Richards, who didn't make it that day. And, and Billy worked with Danny in the chat. Billy Ryan's watching from Arson Explosion. And Jerry comes out running to Brian and Kevin and the two Dannys, and he's like, can you believe this? I lost all the cars again. Because they, you know, they, they lost their cars. Their cars got destroyed in '93, and uh, yeah. little dark gallows humor. Uh, they got destroyed again, I think, by the collapse of the South Tower initially. Um, you know, before the North Tower came down. Um, so yeah, no, that was anybody, as you said, anybody that survived that day, um, yeah, never never been the same. But nevertheless, it's important, especially now that we're five days away from 21 years since that day, that these stories continue to be told. And I have somebody here before I continue to interview you about your this, this career of yours. David Kahn, he says, hey, Pete, nice to see you. Yes, I know, Dave. Dave's good to see you too, my friend. Well, not see you, but see your message. I'll be Dave, Dave was my boss in the, in the 45th Precinct Detective Squad, but Dave was also a, a former housing guy. Hmm. Um, PSA 7, uh, great guy. Great guy to work for. Uh, had a great time in the 4-5 Squad. It was a quieter place, let me tell you. But what a place to learn. Because a lot of the homicides you had in the 4-5 were true whodunits. Bodies left in, you know, right. Ferry Point Park. Bodies left in um, uh, Pelham Bay Park. So, I mean, you know, it wasn't like your typical, well, you know, the rival drug dealers killing each other. A lot of them were mob-related. But, right. I mean, uh, great supportive boss. Um, yeah, pleasure to work for him. So, thanks for the message, Dave. Just want, I just wanted to make sure Jerry Raffa was your boss because sometimes I'll say things and I come across like such a jerk when I do this. You know, that's why I double checked and asked you because I'll say, yeah, you work with this guy. No, I didn't. And, you know, and then I look like a con. So just wanted to double check that. Yeah. Before I he, was, he was he was my boss for my first three years with ATF, hmm. Jerry. Yeah, he's actually done a lot in retirement for 9-11 survivors or people who've gotten sick. Um, so, yeah, good man. And as far as the mob hits are concerned, we call that a public service homicide. <laughs> yeah. 
criminals killing criminals listen it's not good but and then again like i said earlier these guys know the stakes they know what they're doing so you talked about the nice bellow uh investigation which was uh, an interesting one of course case of a guy that originally the nypd didn't want that case you took it turned out good but there was also a really rewarding thing that you were able to partake in at least to some degree which was freeing two wrongfully convicted men sometimes the criminal justice system giveth sometime as you saw throughout your career between federal and local it taketh away in this case of these two men it took it away, and it took away a lot. But you were able to help reverse that. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, the Bellow case and that case are two different cases. The Bellow case right. was a, we arrested a guy who was a, 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 a fugitive from justice in possession of a firearm. And um, we knew he was involved in some home invasions. And we basically told him, look, uh, we know you're involved in home invasion robberies. And we're going to go out there and we're going to prove that. And his first um, response was perhaps not. Uh, cut for prime time, you know, told us where we could go. Uh, so what we did is we went out and we looked at some unsolved home invasions and uh, the description of the car that he had, and we were able to put a home invasion on him. So by the time we met with him the second time, we're like, hey, now you're not only a felon in possession of a firearm, or rather a fugitive in possession of a firearm, now you're going to be indicted for a Hobbs Act robbery and a 924C, which means using a gun in the furtherance of a federal crime of violence. And that carries a lot more time. And then we told him, we're going back out with your picture to show more. He said, no, no, no more. So he, he came in you know, to the proffer, like I was speaking about earlier, with a, a he made a spreadsheet out of loose leaf paper where he drew boxes. And it had 87 different robberies listed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Where they robbed, sometimes, you know, just a description, but not sometimes an actual address. Who was with them? who had walkie-talkies, who had guns, how much money they got. So first thing we had to tell them to stop writing stuff down because it becomes discoverable. So we proffered him probably 30, 40 times. And by the time it was over, we identified his network. Uh, it was originally a group of Dominican folks who were doing robberies, mostly other Dominicans who were involved in the drug trade. Then they started to work with some Albanian folks and then they were robbing anybody under the sun. And when it was all said and done, um, these guys, and it turned out we, we had, we turned into a 16 defendant case. We, um, they pled guilty to 145 different Hobbs Act robberies or home invasion robberies, six murders, money laundering. So that was a fun case to work because I mean, we had victims, you know, a lot, you get home invaded. You don't always stay where you live. You don't feel safe there anymore. So we were flying to Puerto Rico to find victims, Florida. We were all over the United States interviewing victims of robberies that happened in New York who, who left because they didn't feel safe anymore. So that was that was a good one. Um, but the one that involved the, um, the, the innocent folks, the first one um, was, it was a case, the building was right across the street from the New York State Division of Parole. It was 216 East 99th Street. No, no. Um, and it, it, it's it's the building right, right across the street from parole. I think he just read you the courthouse address. Um, and what happened was there was a guy there that we caught who was involved in a, another home invasion robbery that turned into a murder. So we brought him in and he, we had him dead to rights, DNA and everything. So he came in and proffered right away. And he talks to us about six murders he did. So what we would do is we would go out because you don't just take somebody's word for it. You got to go out and corroborate it. So we would go and pull the files 
And um, when looking at the files, two of them were closed by arrest. So we're like, okay, this doesn't make any sense because he's saying he had a role in this and there was other people arrested. So we went and in the first instance, we had like, you know, this guy told us where he got the gun, where he got a sweat jacket from, what car he was driving. So we went and corroborated all of these facts and brought them to the district attorney's office. And they're like, nah, we have a, uh, we already have somebody who's willing to testify, um, you know, that he, that this person was the shooter. And I'm like, that's, that doesn't make any sense, man. Because, you know, when this person comes in and proffers to it, he's, he's subjecting himself to potentially being charged under a death eligible statute federally. So, you know, why are you going to come in and risk getting the death sentence if you're going to lie? Because if you, the other thing is with these cooperation agreements, if you withhold information or you lie, they rip that agreement up and I see him do it. And you instantly get what's at the high end of what you would face. So, you know, you're not going to get a deal. So anyway, what happened was um, we were going back and forth. Uh, it was a, a, a prosecutor named Greenfield. Finally, I got in a car and I drove up because we, we figured out who the shooter was. I drove up to Shaolin Correctional Facility and we found this guy's name was Ty. And I sat him down. I said, look, this is what I know, you know, and showed him a photo book. I said, I know who these people are. You're going to tell me where you fit into this um, because you're going to get indicted and then you're going to have to dig yourself out of that hole. He threw everything out there, how much he was offered. And they didn't even finish the payment. They paid him like a third of what, you know, talk about loyalty amongst thieves, right? So, um, but he confessed to this, to this murder. So now I'm like, all right, I got to do something because the D, the Bronx DA was still going to try this kid Lacey Little for a murder that I'm now clear he didn't do. So I arrested Ty Glynn right there on the spot in Shawangunk, which was kind of a, a, told him he was under arrest, but it's not like I could cuff him and take him out of there. Uh, so then I called the U.S. Attorney's Office and they started drawing up the criminal paperwork to charge him. And it was at that point that the DA's office had to back off because now they can't try a guy for a murder. Um, and say that there's no reasonable doubt when someone else has just been arrested for that murder. And this guy confessed to everything. The same thing, where he got the gun, who was with him. So all the puzzle pieces fit in. So eventually, when, when the dust shook out, you know, we're asking the DA's office, like, well, they, well, we had a witness. I'm like, well, because in the case file was all the names of all these other players. I'm like, why weren't they interviewed? And they're like, well, they, we couldn't find them. You know, I found them, Mike. I left the business card in the door. And an old housing police trick, Scott Wagner like, and another under the door in case one got lost. 15 minutes later, the guy calls me. So you got to wonder how in God's name did these guys not find him when not only did he found us because we left the business car there. So it's, it's, that was pathetic. So then, but the second guy in that case, same situation, it was a, a mistaken identity case. The, the ADA in that case, oh man, I can't believe I can't think of his name, Dan McCarthy. I called Dan McCarthy. He's passed on. God rest his soul. And I told him, Dan, this is what I have. And he's like, Pete, I heard what happened with the other case. He said, is that, um, is there any way that if you're going to go interview this guy, can, can you take one of my investigators and turn out a big guy named John Wall up with you? I'm like, Dan, this isn't about me. Yes. <laughs> I just want to get to the truth. So we went up there. We interviewed the guy. The guy tells us, he said, look, I told the detectives that were, um, that will work in that case that they picked that they arrested the wrong guy. He goes, I'm not going to rat and say who actually tried to kill me. He goes, but I'm telling you that they arrested. So Dan McCarthy had that guy out in like 48 hours from that statement. Um, later on though, unfortunately in another case related to sex money murder, um, we've got five more guys out of prison for a murder. They didn't commit uh, that sex money murder guys did. And then finally, not that long ago, we got another guy out of prison who did 25 years for a, uh, an arrest, that he, and, but in each one of those, Mike, 
despite overwhelming evidence of innocence, we couldn't get the Bronx DA's office to back off on any of them. Like it literally um, was kind of heartbreaking in a way to see that, you know, look, cops don't want to put the wrong guy in jail ever, at least none that I work with. It was disheartening to see how hard it was to get an innocent, again, overwhelming evidence of innocence out of jail when you go to the district attorney's office with that information. It was a shocker. Um, luckily, they were all out of jail. So total, I've got nine people out of prison for stuff they didn't commit. Eight of them murders. One was for a robbery. And that transitions into something I wanted to ask you about because you were helping rewrite the book kind of literally in a sense with how the ATF was going about IDing suspects. Because again, as you said, nobody, and I guess this applies at the federal level too, wants to put somebody in jail that's not the actual person that did the crime, rather it be a minor crime or rather it be a major crime. And in order to do that, sometimes you kind of got to say, all right, stop, time out. We got to change the game plan here. Tell me about that. Well, what happened was I was a supervisor out in Phoenix. I was out there for five years, um, way different than New York. Uh, I imagine. Know, yeah. Way different. So I had a young agent who made an arrest on a robbery case. And what happened was we were doing court prep. So, you know, anybody who's had a case that goes to trial, know you got to go out and run down, you know, cross all the T's, dot all the I's. And we were actually going out there to verify a license plate. Now, I wasn't involved in the case when it happened, but now I'm out there now. So anyway, we knock on the door and we're speaking to a woman in an apartment. And this guy tries to go out the window. So I run, the cop in me kicks in. And at this time, I'm afraid a little bit different. Probably shouldn't have done this. I grab him by the belt and I pull him back in and I ask him, for, for his information. He said, my name is Cesar Duran, Cesar Duran. So I, I look at the agent and I'm like, is it the defendant's name, Cesar Duran? And she's like, yeah. I said, okay. So this I said, something's fishy here. So I tell the guy, I said, look, you know why we're here, right? And the guy goes, listen, when the bombs went off, I got scared. I ran around. What he was talking about was the flashbangs. So anyway, I said, well, you're going to come with us. We want to talk to you. Bring him back to the, to the uh, a Phoenix PD precinct. And we, he confesses to this, to being a part of the robbery and that when the flashbangs went off, he beat feet. So I asked the, the, the agent, I'm like, how did you come to the conclusion that the guy you arrested was Cesar Duran? So she shows me a picture. She goes, well, I showed this to the undercover. And it was one photo, not a photo array, one photo. And the undercover had met the person once. And I'm like, this is BS. I'm like, this isn't how it's supposed to go. You should have done a photo ring. So she's crying because now she realizes that the wrong man has been in jail for months now waiting trial. Um, and, and which was another interesting thing. When I called the federal prosecutors are a little bit different than state prosecutors. You don't make summary arrests on a street. Very, very rarely do you do that. So when I called the um, the uh, the prosecutors on the case to say, hey, man, I said, listen, we, uh, we got a problem. It's like, well, what's the problem? I said, well, we found the right Cesar Duran and I have him in custody. And they're like, well, who authorized you to pick him up? And I'm like, hey, dummy, we got a bigger problem. You got the wrong guy sitting in jail. They're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. But so anyway, uh, we got the, the innocent guy out and had to get him, you know, had to get his fingerprints expunged, which was a whole nother thing. But um, I realized, I said, so, you know, I, I thought back to my time in the academy and they don't teach the stuff that we learned as detectives in CIC. You know, when is a confirmatory ID good? You know, how to do a lineup? Because federally, they're not done very often. In Bronx Homicide, we did the lineups for the entire borough. So I said, let me take this expertise that I had working in Bronx Homicide and put it on paper so that agents cannot, you know, can have something to refer to, to not make the mistake that this agent made. Because she was heartbroken and felt guilty as hell about what she had done. But the reality is it's hard to blame her when she was never trained on the right way to do it. So what yeah, I did was- a product I, of her environment. 
Exactly. So I, I wrote the policies and procedures for ATF to do, um, you know, a different sort of identification procedures. And then, which was nice because later on, the Department of Justice asked me to sit on a working group and do it for all the other federal agencies as well, where, you know, not just me, but, you know, a, a representative from each agency was there. And, and this was back in 2012. And it, it still, um, you know, remains in effect now. But it's, it's to protect, you know, it's to protect the integrity of the case, actually. But it's also, you know, to prevent mistakes like that from happening again. How much of a, how much, and I imagine it probably played a big role, but you went on to, of course, be an instructor as well. You did a lot of teaching towards the end of your career with the ATF. I imagine that played a significant role in your classes. You know, actually, it, it, what happened with that is I, when I was out in Phoenix, I blew the whistle on that whole Fast and Furious thing mm-hmm. and, and wound up having to leave the state of Arizona because the U.S. Attorney's Office didn't love me anymore because I called their baby ugly. <laughs> so, and they were the only U.S. Attorney's Office. In Arizona, so I, that's I mean, one way I, to put it. Yeah, yeah. So what happened was I um I wound up going up to Canada for a couple of years, and then um it was great. You want to talk about a great assignment? And then when I came back, um I was asked to take over training, mostly from leadership perspective, leadership training, because the director at the time um, respected that I told the truth through that whole face of fears thing, and I took my lumps, and I took a lot of lumps. Um, so he thought that I had some unique experiences, so to speak. And, and that's exactly what he said. He goes, I'd like you to take over our leadership training um, because, you, you know, you've been through some things that, you know, I, I think people could benefit from your experiences. And I was originally resistant to it because I am far, like far from an academic. And I always views, you know, the people that do, do the kind of stuff as people who should come from academia. So it, that, that the two things really were not tied in at all. Um you know, and I did. I wound up later on. You know, I retired as a deputy assistant director uh, from ATF over all training. Um, you know, because after that first stint in training, I went down to Miami for a couple of years, um, and then back to headquarters. But it, the nice thing about my final assignment was I got to see all the fresh new faces of ATF come in um, as brand new agents that weren't ground down by the politics and you know the grind of of the job. One, one more thing before I get to, of course, when you retired in 2021, there was another case I wanted to ask you about, South Dakota Glocks. For those that are not familiar with that, tell me about it and tell them about it, too. Well, that case was a case that was handled by one of my agents, a guy named Clayton Merrill. Good guy. Uh, he was a former sheriff or deputy sheriff from somewhere in Illinois or, or Indiana. I forgot which. And it, it involved a guy who was um, he bought a large piece of property in South Dakota and started amassing Glocks, like over a hundred Glocks that he had ordered. Now, look, under federal law, you can you can buy multiple guns. We get notified if you buy more than two. That's that's just how it goes. You buy one, no one no one knows anything unless it gets traced to the crime scene. So this guy bought it was well over a hundred. And so our first thought is, well, maybe this guy's starting up some sort of security guard company, and he plans on arming guards, and which is fine. You can do that as long as you you know uh, do all the correct paperwork. So we we did our research and we found that, no, he was kind of creating a compound. And, um, you know, when we hear compound uh, in ATF, the first thing we think of is, you know, because we had a very bad incident in 93 with the guy. Waco. So you know, we don't want that. We don't want a compound. And we started looking at, you know, how, how the, the, the monies were structured and it was clearly illegal. So we decided to, to seize the guns before they made it into his custody. And, um, you know, we, of course, engaged the courts and it turned out to be the largest judicial forfeiture of firearms in U.S. history at the time. 
Um, because obviously, you know, we didn't want the guns to wind up in the hands of someone who had bad intent. You know, but it's and it's weird because I remember my first time out there, uh, well, my first year in Arizona, um, our first car stop involved 13 AK-47s in a van heading to Mexico. And I was telling yeah, my that's agent, not a lot. No, but it, it's funny because I was telling my agent, said, you realize that if, if I if we made this car stop in the Bronx, this would be the, the number one story on the news. There, the U.S. Attorney's Office wouldn't even prosecute it. Like, it, it was so insignificant that they're like, ah, you know, we'll just let them go. Maybe we'll indict it later. And they never did. So it was a different environment. But there was there was one instance where we had a guy who threatened his manager at Honeywell. And so we wound up doing a search warrant of a storage locker that he had. He had um, around 100 guns. Most of them were like AR-15s. But it, the dude was a weirdo. So like some of them had like rainbow stickers or little flower stickers or like, you know, all different kinds of it's like stickers affixed to these guns. Not like how a normal person would care for a firearm. So the news shows up. And the reporter is like, well, he had 90-something guns. Aren't you appalled? And I was like, well, yes and no. I said, I'm appalled by the conditions of the guns. I said, but it's not illegal to have a collection of guns, even a very large collection of guns. I said, as long as they're properly stored and they're legal, that's we're not concerned with that. And she was so offended that an ATF agent would say that. But the reality is, is look, we took, we take an oath to uh, you know to uphold the Constitution. And part of the Constitution is if you're not a criminal – uh, you could go out there and, and buy, you know, guns. Um, you know, in, in Arizona, there was a lot of folks that had a lot of guns, um, yeah. which, you know, was a different different environment than what I was used to in New York. Right, because I was going to say, those of us that live in the Northeast wouldn't understand it because we have different interests and a different culture. You go out to the Midwest, you go out to, you know, the Bible Belt of the United States, Oklahoma, states like that, Texas, Arizona. That's a big part of their culture there. So it's odd to us, but as you said, it's normal to them. It's just day-to-day life. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's as normal as having a collection of sports memorabilia, for example, you know, for them out there. So it's yeah. a little bit different depending on where you are, you know. And I, But credit to you for acclimating to that, despite being a New York guy. You know, you could have came in there with a different attitude and kind of looked down on them, but you didn't. You understood what the, what the uh, rule book was. You understood how to play by their game with respect. And as Scotty Wagner saying here, Using common sense, all of Pete's success as a Fed was a direct result of his training as a New York City housing detective, as you mentioned earlier, doing more with less. And also, like Scotty said, to repeat it again, we were encouraged to use common sense, and you did. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I, but it's funny because the other dynamic, like later on in my career, I, w- I wound up down in Miami, and while right. I was down there, or you, know, yeah. Well, I, well, let me tell you something. Like when I when I was in charge of the Miami office, I also oversaw Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. So I'm not going to complain that once a month and the keys once a month, I'd have to get to each of those destinations for meetings and the government paid for it. So that was that was a nice perk that I no longer have. But um, the uh, the thing that also was, in, you know, um, Parkland and Pulse and, um, you know, even the Fort Lauderdale Airport shooting, that was only a handgun. You know, that that brought up a lot of the old uh, issues that I dealt with in, in Arizona with the media who wanted to kind of portray gun ownership in different lights than they necessarily should be portrayed in, you know, particularly, um, you know, because the reality is at the press conference for, for Parkland, one of the comments I made is that the gun was lawfully purchased. I'm not saying it was lawful that what he did, Nicholas Cruz, by any stretch. Right. But the reality is, is that he, you know, he went in and lawfully purchased those firearms. Um, not my place to say whether I think that there should be better laws or that's, I just enforce the laws that are on the books. And that's kind of what happens with folks from ATF. They try to get, you know, 
um, squeezed into the corner to come up with, you know, uh, how you're supposed to frame these things. But the reality is you're, we only we only enforce the laws that are on the books. And I don't advocate one way or the other for you know what laws we should have. That's up to the legislators to do, you know. And is it because of all that bureaucracy that you called it a day last year? You know, um, I worked with some amazing folks early in my career and throughout my career. And um, the, the, the profession has changed a little bit, you know. So, you know, there was a period where when I was in headquarters, I could walk down the hall and talk to a lot of guys who had done cases and we can sit there and hash things out and maybe not agree with each other. So, you know, and sometimes we, we would argue to get to specific points or to decide which way we were going to go. And I think that's important. Like, you know, as, if, as a leader, when I was in charge of the Miami office, for example, I had two people directly under me. We didn't always agree. And there were times where we would have arguments, sometimes heated arguments, um, never personal and there were times where I'd be like, you know what, you guys are right. And then there were times where I'd be like, you know something, I understand where you're coming from, but this is where we're going to go. Um, that was how it was when I first got to headquarters. Some really, really good guys, Danny Kumar, Ken Crow, Billy Temple, Bill McMullen. Those guys were retired. And the folks that replaced them were, they, they kind of viewed me as like a 1990s throwback. And they didn't like to have that dissent. They more like to be told how smart they were and, you know, yes, yes, sir. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I started to realize that it just was, was time to go, you know, it was just a different style of leadership. Um, we have a mandatory retirement age of 57. I was 55. I said, let me get out on my terms, you know? Um, right. But yeah, I loved it. Like I said, the last few years were good because once a month I'd have to go down to our Academy, which is down in Brunswick, Georgia, and just to see the new people coming in and, to see the, the enthusiasm and to watch them go through training. Because our training is no joke. Um, it was, it was, it kind of brought the life back into me when I was getting tired. So I didn't leave bitter. It's just that, you know, I, I was a square peg in a round hole at the end. But that's fine. I'm not going to change for anybody, Mike. You know? Right. No, and it's something that I remember one of the uh, emergency service guys telling me when I was interviewing him, Ronnie Griffith, who worked out in Brooklyn in eight truck primarily. And I asked him, you know, he had his 20 in by 2004. 9-11 took a lot out of him. But I asked him, I says, even without that day, you know, why'd you leave in 04? Had it not been for that day, would you still left in 04? He's like, I left because the job was evolving and I wasn't evolving with it. You know, simple enough. And when you basically every cop and every fireman, doesn't matter where they work, but especially in the bigger cities, especially like New York, will tell you they know. They just know when it's time. Yeah, I've had my fun. Time to go. And as long as you can leave on your terms in one piece, hey, good. Yeah. And I was look, I worked with some of the finest people on the planet, both in, in housing and in the NYPD and in ATF. So I have no regrets, man. Just I saw yeah. some amazing folks doing amazing things, often with you know, just a lot of creativity and not much else. Right. So. <laughs> nah, you know what? You got you got afforded a privilege that a lot of guys and gals through the years did not. And that is, you know, you got to the end. There's a lot of people, unfortunately, you go down to these memorial walls, especially passing now the anniversary, about to pass the anniversary of 9-11 or during police week when you go down to Memorial in Washington. A lot of people never got to put in their papers, you yeah. know, and it's unfortunate, yeah. you know, but you did. And that's a very... Uh, good thing as as did some of the people in the chat even if you got there a little bit banged up a little nicked a little bruised the point is you got there and it was a hell of a career on that note we now go to the rapid fire five hit and run questions for me five hit and run answers from you are you ready you can say pass if you want of course oh, i'm ready all right first if you could describe your career 34 years to be exact in one word what would it be and why fulfilling 
Um, I, I got, again, I got to work with some amazing people. Um, I got to do things I never thought I would do. You know, I mean, it's funny, I had an Academy instructor say, congratulations, kid. You just bought front row tickets to the greatest show on earth. Um, it's true. You know, I mean, you know, you helped a lot of people. Um, felt like I kept people safe. I, I fulfilling, uh, among, you know, beyond anything else, fulfilling, exciting, maybe not so much all the time, boring, very frequently, but fulfilling all the time. Second, you talked about getting people out of prison who were wrongfully convicted, and that's great. But during your career on patrol with the housing police, obviously making detectives a different thing, the duties are different. But as a patrolman with the housing police, tell me about the most uplifting call you ever responded to. Okay. It wasn't a call. There was a guy who I arrested probably six times. His name was Izzy. Um, drug addict. <clears throat> Mostly a problem in the senior citizen building and the Throgs Neck projects. Um one day I was getting ready to go to get off work and he walked into the precinct specifically asking for me. And I didn't know why, but he wouldn't talk to anybody else. So, you know, I, I approached him, hey, is everything okay? And he's like, no, he goes, I just got a call from Jacoby Hospital. They said my mother's dead. And he, he breaks down. And I'm like, okay. I said, well, who, you, what number did they call you from? So anyway, long story short, I'm like, all right, let me help this guy. You know, I felt bad for him. And every time I arrested him, he was respectful. And I thought it was, you know, I was flattered that, you know, despite the fact that I arrested this guy a bunch of times, that he must have thought I treated him decently. Well, anyway, long story short, we run some things down. His mom did not die. Uh, somebody literally pranked him, I mean, I, I, which I know sounds, yeah, messed up, uh, but that, you know, that I'm using this as an example. But just to, to be able to find that out for the guy um, was meant a lot to me. But again, it, it, it kind of helped me realize that I was doing things, at least in my mind, right. That someone who I had, you know, encountered and getting arrested, I imagine is a bad experience. So someone who I put through a bad experience at least six times, uh, thought I treated him fairly enough to come look for me during uh, a time where, you know, he was in bad shape. So uh, I found that to be uplifting for me, at least, you know, and for him, and for him because his mother wasn't dead. Right. Well, of course that is uplifting. Third, being Italian, is it sauce or is it gravy for you? It's gravy. <laughs> I have to ask, and I'm glad I did. Glad I did. Fourth, favorite bar or restaurant in New York City when you're in New York City. Or it could be a restaurant from the past, too. Well, let me tell you something. I almost cried, and I mean that, uh, when Forlini's closed. I don't know if you know Forlini's behind it's the a big cup thing. Up. Every time I went to New York City, I made sure, um, you know, this is because I left New York in 2007. Every time I returned, and I returned a lot for trials, when I, I would go to Forlini's. I was there a month before they closed, and I was heartbroken to, to hear they closed. Another one would be El Rio Grande on 38th and 3rd, and that's only because that's a place that uh, a really good detective I worked with named George Millian took me when I saw my first homicide to celebrate. So what I would do was anytime I worked with a newer detective or even a newer agent when I became an ATF agent in New York, we would go there kind of paying it forward, but that was kind of a tribute to my friendship with George, who did it for me. So those two places I'm very fond of. Rio Grande is still there. Paulina's hopefully it stays there. Yeah. Hopefully it stays there. Fifth and finally, given your experiences at the local level with the housing police and later the NYPD, the federal level with the ATF, anybody who wants to get into law enforcement, no matter what area, what advice would you give them given your experiences? A couple things. One is um, better be willing to learn. You know, this is a job that's constantly changing. Laws change, procedures change, uh, technology changes, the way criminals operate changes. Um, so be willing to learn. And the day that you think you know everything, that's the day that you need to go away, retire, or do something else. 
the other thing is that there is absolutely nothing as important in this profession as your reputation. Um, it's the only thing that you take to the grave with you, uh, you know, and, and what your peers think of you is more important than perhaps anything else. You know, um, it, it's who you are, frankly. So, I mean, integrity and the willingness to learn and, and, and finally be humble. You know, I mean, having a badge in your pocket or on your chest, it's not power, it's responsibility. You know, and we, we've all, the people on this, and I'm sure you've interviewed people who perceive it as power. Uh, if that's how you come in, um, you're, you're not going to be a very good cop and, and you're probably going to fail or get jammed up. You know, it's responsibility uh, and um, and really nothing else. So you know, do the job with honor and with integrity and, and just be willing to learn. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Before I say goodbye to the audience and we'll say our goodbyes off air, is there any shout outs to anyone or anything that you want to give? Me? Yes. Yeah, well, hey, I want to shout out to anybody who wore a badge and worked with me, whether it was in the Bronx or in housing. Because I even when I was an ATF agent, I worked a lot with the cops. Um, you know, shout out to those folks. Because believe me, I had a really good career, but I would not have been successful without, without help. And nobody does it alone. You know, uh, same thing with the prosecutors I worked with. I worked with some amazing prosecutors and they made me, um, you know, they, they made me keep bring my A game every day. Um, you know, it was important. So shout out to them, of course. And thanks to you to, for coming on. Like I said, we'll say goodbye off the air. And thanks to everybody that tuned in tonight. Appreciate you guys always showing up. Coming up next on the Mike to New Haven podcast, it was supposed to be an ESU show. I'm going to have to change it. The guest I intended to have this Friday pulled out, so I don't have anybody right now for Friday. I'll try to find somebody, uh, and hopefully I can bring you a show. But if I don't get the chance to bring you a show this Friday, then I'll definitely see you uh, next Monday for what should be an interesting interview with, if I have my facts correct here. And I'm just doing so many, I'm kind of losing my mind. I'm losing track of who's who. But let me pull up who I have for uh, next Tuesday. Bear with me, folks, uh, while I do that. A little extra time with me, by the way. I hope you don't mind. Uh, while I pull up my reminders in my calendar, because without it, I'm lost. It is going to be, yes, Patty Pogan. That's going to be a good show for my emergency service unit miniseries. Patty was a two-truck guy and later went on to be a detective. He left DSU, and I think he went into the JTTF in 1998. So that should be an interesting interview with him next Tuesday. And like I said, I'll try to get a show in mind for this Friday. In the meantime, on behalf of Pete Forcelli, I am Mike Cologne, and we will see you next time. Have a great weekend. Rest of your weekend, rest of your week, everybody. Stay safe.
Thanks for 